so we're going to dive into Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, starting in verse 1, let's just read, okay? Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us give grain that we may even keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help them. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So right off the bat, we see this great outcry from the Jewish people. You know, to kind of repaint the picture for you, what we've seen so far is we see that this guy Nehemiah is a governor, and he sat under the king Artaxerxes. And at this period of time, we see that the Babylonian army broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Nehemiah's hometown, right? And Nehemiah was upset. He wanted to kind of rebuild the walls and get these people back on their feet. And King Artaxerxes gave his blessing. And uh, we saw last week, as Jason taught through chapter 4, we see that there was the, you know, the, the, the oppression of the enemy trying to come against the Jewish people as they were rebuilding the walls. Right? We see this guy, Sambalad and, and Tobiah, we see them kind of pressing against Nehemiah as they are rebuilding the walls. And Nehemiah built this way and he said, hey, in one hand we're going to carry our weapons, and in the other hand we're going to carry our tools. And he planned and fought through prayer against the enemy against an outside attack. But what we're seeing right now at this point in the story, you know, chapter 4 ends on a high note, right? Great victory. But now, there's an attack within. The people are turning on themselves. It's a sobering reminder of our incessant need to serve and honor one another, particularly in the church. It's easy for us to allow politics or preferences to distract us from the commonality of faith. Paul warns us about these things on multiple occasions. It's this idea that, that we now, as we put theological terms to these ideas, we call it factionalism, right? We see faction that divides amongst the church for generations, and Paul warns us against factionalism and Galatians 5.20 calls it a sin of the flesh. And we see Matthew's account in 12.25. He makes it clear that no city or house divided amongst itself can stand. It's so important for us as believers in Christ, as a church, to stand strong in unity. It's okay to have different opinions, right? We all have different opinions. Opinions. I've got my own opinions, you've got your own opinions. It's okay to have differing opinions if those differing opinions are not rooted in sin. But it's when we let those differing opinions stand in the way of the unity of the church that those opinions become sin. Can I say that again? It's okay to have differing opinions 
if those opinions are not rooted in sin. But when those opinions stand in the way of the unity of the church, they become sin. One commentator on this section of Nehemiah said that the enemy couldn't stop the work of God by direct attack. But the work stopped when God's people were not unified and working together. Now what is the root of the disunity found in Nehemiah 5? I would say that the answer to that would be money. Now, luckily, none of us here have ever been affected negatively by money, so we can just keep moving. <laughs> the reality is that money is the very root, one of the leading causes of many church divisions. Money is one of the leading causes of the disunity of many families, of many marriages. I heard stories for years about families torn apart because of some Somebody passes away and they can't come to an agreement on how to handle the estates or marriages falling apart because one person thinks finances should be handled this way and one this way. But money is just one of those areas, right? It's, it's a major area, but it's one area that this unity can derive from. Other areas we see are, are politics, power, influence. Security, pride, jealousy, like those are just a few examples of ways that the enemy can get his foot in the door to create disunity within the church. Those things cause us to live selfishly instead of selflessly. They cause us to hoard instead of share. And so right now in this section of Nehemiah, we're seeing great disunity arise. There's a famine, right? And because of the famine, people are trying, are scrounging to find food, and they're selling, they're mortgaging their fields and their vineyards and their houses to get money. They're, they're you know, borrowing from the king's tax. And so we see, what we're going to read here in a minute, we see kind of wealthier people taking advantage of uh, lesser fortunate people. Let's keep reading in verse 6. This is Nehemiah talking. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and a percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. 
Then they said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook the fold out of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And so right here we see Nehemiah bring a rebuke against the people who were taking advantage of the other people, right? We see again these people who were in a more fortunate place in their whatever it was, their careers, their livelihood, and they were exacting interest from those who could not afford to, to pay for food during the famine or to raise food on their own. And so we see a rebuke, but I want us to carefully examine how this rebuke took place. Because this paints a very strong picture of how we are to carry ourselves in a place where we see discrepancies, right? Let's look at this. In verse 7, we see that Nehemiah took counsel with himself. In other words, Nehemiah thought before he acted. I see you. You guys nudging your husbands over there. <laughs> Nehemiah thought before he acted. Nehemiah discovered that the very people that he called family, his hometown, these people were taking advantage of each other. He was disgusted with their behavior. He was red hot. He was furious at what he had heard. But he did not allow his anger to dictate his response. We see a pause, we see a processing, and we see a thoughtful but firm response to their behavior. What can we learn from Nehemiah in this situation? We can learn to have prudence in conversation. Proverbs 17, 27 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Sometimes it's easier for us to respond brashly. It's easy for us to hear something that we don't agree with and just come right back at somebody. It's easy for us to be on Facebook and see something that we don't agree with and just type out a response and send it, right? It's so easy for us to lash, but it takes prudence it takes wisdom, and it takes a cool demeanor rooted in Jesus to respond appropriately. <laughs> but that didn't stop a rebuke from taking place. Just because he didn't respond in a brash way didn't mean that there wasn't room for rebuke. So let's keep, you know, pulling this apart a little bit. He reminded these people of the fear of God. Now, I want to talk about this for a second because for many people, understanding, comprehending the fear of God can be tricky, right? Like the, the question we often ask or that I often hear is, well, how, why would I fear a God who is all loving? Like I've heard over and over that Jesus died for me and he loved me and, and he took the place of my sin and, and he's all loving and he's gracious. So why would I fear that kind of God? 
But we have to understand that there are multiple types of fear. I want to read 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 really quick. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, the type of fear that we're hearing right in this section is this cowering fear. You haven't been perfected in love. You're not really walking with Jesus and you're afraid, you're cowering, you're fearful of the wrath of God himself. But what we can understand is that the wrath of God was absorbed by the blood of Jesus. We no longer have to walk in a cowering fear of the wrath of God because that was taken care of on the cross. Nehemiah 1.11 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of, man, of this man. So this other thing that we see is this holy reverence for God's ability to cause wrath. Appreciation of how the Son of God took the wrath of We're able to cling closely to the Lord and far from his wrath. So the other type of fear we're talking about is this holy reverence and appreciation of the fact that God's wrath exists, but we don't have to take it. There's a, a theologian, an author, a pastor, you guys, some of y'all have heard of him, named John Piper, and he wrote this very a powerful description, kind of painted a picture of understanding this wrath, and I want to I want to read it for us this morning. He says that he pictures himself in the mountains, say like the Himalayan mountains, and he says I'm I'm on these massive rock faces, and I see a storm coming. It's this massive storm, and I feel unbelievably vulnerable on these mountain. On these, in this mountain, and, and so I am desperately looking for a little covert in the rock where I won't be blown off the side of the cliff. So I find a hole in the side of the mountain, and I hop in that hole and spin around, and then suddenly the holiness and the justice and the power and the wrath and the judgment of God breaks over me like a hurricane, but I know I'm totally safe. Which means all that horrible danger is transposed in the music of majesty. And I can enjoy it rather than fearing it. And I think that's what the cross is. Jesus died for us to provide a place where we could enjoy the majesty of God. With a kind of fear and trembling and reverence and awe, but not a cowering fear. And I think when I was reading that, I was thinking about just sitting on my front porch watching storms come over. You know, we've got the protection of our house, and we can listen to the wrath of the storm, the beaming lightning, the rumbling thunder, and we know we're safe. That's, that's what uh, understanding the true fear of God looks like. And so we see that Nehemiah reminds these people of the fear of God. 
They're taking advantage of people who have no control over their circumstance. They are exacting interest from people who have no ability to control. They're far from the godly model, and I think sometimes we need to be reminded of what it looks like, of what that godly model looks like. We cannot, in and of our own methods, achieve perfection. It's impossible. Perfection was achieved by the blood of Jesus alone. But through the conviction of the Spirit, we can allow sanctification to do its work in our lives and draw us nearer to the person of God. Nehemiah gives a personal example of, of sacrifice. He and his brother are yielding to the call of God to live this sacrificial lifestyle. Now sometimes our simple rhythms of sacrificial obedience can be the very thing that leads other people into a place of knowing Jesus. Or even just growing in this area of sanctification. I, I'm, I'm saying our simple rhythms of sacrificial obedience can be the very thing that draws somebody into an eternity of peace and purpose and promise. Like the little things in life that we cling so tightly to that make no difference at all. If we learn to let go of them, to sacrifice a little bit, to serve a little deeper, to love one another well, these are things that can point people to the cross. So, following Nehemiah's rebuke, we see examples of obedience. We see the assembly respond. And I want to keep reading starting in verse 14. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for their work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So he continues at this point to describe the necessity of sacrificial living. He provides an example of what this looks like. And ultimately, he provides an example of what it looks like to live sacrificially even when your position permits you to have more. In verse 18, we see that Nehemiah had the ability to demand a food allowance, but knowing 
least at his own expense. Matthew 19, 23 and 24 is this section that says, as Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle rather than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I, I bring this verse up to talk about how Nehemiah's example is an example of within the context of wealth, how to live in sacrificial obedience. So his position allowed him to demand a food allowance from the people, yet in knowing the burden that it would cause those people, he reeled it back. He did not demand a food allowance and instead prepared a feast for these people. That's an example of within the context of wealth, turning what you have into blessing and honor to sacrifice. In the fear of God and in holy obedience to scripture, he submitted everything to the Lord and trusted that he would work out the details. Sacrificial obedience means letting go of something that you could have in order to see somebody else benefit. Now, for me, one of the most encouraging parts of this entire uh, chapter was when I was reading through it, you know, I was, I was pulling things apart, I was reading different things, and one of the most encouraging parts was the very last verse, verse 19. Nehemiah, with confidence, tells the Lord to remember all that he had done for these people. Now, this was not out of some sort of uh, personal gain or bragging rights. This was said out of a confident and passionate spirit in a way that became a teaching element for the people and for us for generations to come. He said, remember all that I have done for these people. And I asked us as a church, I'm asking myself, and I'm asking us collectively, are we living in a way that we can confidently stand before the Lord one day and say, remember all that I've done for these people. Remember the way that I lived selflessly. Remember the way that I sacrificed. Or am I lacking? Am I holding on to prideful dispositions that prohibit love being perfected within me. I want to revisit this question of takeaway, right? What is it from this entire section when we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, what can we take away? One of the biggest things we can grab a hold of is the incessant need to fight How do we do that? First of all, we cling to Scripture. It's in and through Scripture alone that true unity is found. Rooted in the very essence of Jesus Christ. Unity is not found in some sort of extracurricular resource. There are not 
readings outside of Scripture that can point us towards unity. True and authentic unity is rooted in Jesus, read through Scripture, and that alone is where we gain the context for true unity. So we cling to Scripture, we love one another. Sometimes it's hard to love one another. I mean, hard. In Matthew 22, Jesus says that our first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means if somebody's from a different social class as you, if you don't fully agree with somebody, if you think somebody looks kind of funny, whatever it is, it means loving unconditionally. That's how we fight against this unity. We cling to Scripture. We love one another. We learn to fear the Lord. Not this cowering fear, not this trembling fear, but this holy awe and respect and reverence for Jesus. And fourth, we seek selfless sacrifice. Just like we see in Nehemiah, we put the needs of other people above our own needs. If we're more concerned about the well-being of other people, or, or we're, we're more concerned about the needs of other people than we are even of our own self, then it's impossible for this unity to enter because we're concerned about other people. Now, I'm kind of wrapping up here. Bank can tell us, or choir, or whoever is coming up here. Um, I want to paint this picture, okay? So Easter is approaching, right? And what is it that we kind of study through Easter? We learn about the, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus on the cross. And we see that on the third day he rose. That's where we celebrate at Easter. And then after Jesus rose, we see that he lived Amongst his disciples, he presented himself to several hundred people, I think about 500 people, and, and walked the earth for another 42, 43 days. And on the 43rd day, he ascended into heaven. And one week later, these people were gathered, followers of Jesus, gathered in this place called the Upper Room. 120 people were gathered in this place. Jesus told them to wait there. And this is what happened, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is church unity.
unity, not the division of the enemy, but a holy appreciation and love for one another, honor, sacrifice, prayer, selfless service, hopeful expectation, peace, purpose, provision, growth. Guys, this is church unity. Not clinging to prideful dispositions, irrelevant behaviors, but having a Jesus-centric fear of God. We have to take a self-evaluation test. We, me, you, all of us, have to take a self-evaluation test and ask ourselves, am I willing to let go of prideful dispositions and live in sacrificial obedience so that the unity of Jesus is perfected within us? What does that look like for you? I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to worship. And I'm going to ask any of our elders in the room, if, if maybe a couple of you can stand at the back of the room. Uh, if there's enough, a couple can stand up front to you. Um, but I want to ask us as a church to evaluate our hearts. Maybe you want to come and kneel at the cross on the prayer rug over here. Maybe you want to stop at one of the elders and just ask them to, to pray with you or over you. And let's allow the radiance of Christ to be the driving force behind our next steps, okay? Because it's not enough for us to come to a church and listen to a message and go home and let it come in this year and out this year. It's not enough. What we as a church are charged to do is internalize the very word of God as an application to that word. So let's evaluate our hearts this morning. Seek what our next steps of obedience might be. And as a church family, as believers in this community, let's grow together in unity. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we call upon your name and ask that you would lead us into this place of unity and peace and, and purpose and God, anything that's holding us back from that or destroyed may there not be even one tiny trace of disunity and if there is whether we've been holding on to a disagreement or we've been upset about some little minuscule detail of the church that makes absolutely no eternal difference. I pray that today you would break down those walls, release us from those burdens, and give us this passion to serve and to honor you in a way that we never have before. Lord, may that serving and may that honoring be in unity as a church. And together, as a church, Lord, may we see great things happen. Lord, we're in a community that is desperate for the word of God. They might not know it, but it exists. And we need to see our unity bring forth, bring forth change. Lord, we need to oppose the enemy in our community. There are people that have for generations been longing for something and they don't understand what that something is in our unity. May we see people added to the kingdom of heaven day by day. Not for any sort of 
bragging rights on our church growth or anything like that, but so that lives are changed, so that people who right now are sitting at home and the, the eternal destination that they're headed towards is hell, that tomorrow they wake up and the eternal destination that they're headed for is heaven. Give us confidence, give us peace, give us the patient and enduring heart 